Blog Talk Radio. Presenting yourselves on this battlefield. I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. Oh! The English are too many.
A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new governments, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such governments and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tariffs only. He has called together legislative bodies and places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly, reposing with madly firmness this invasion of the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such evolution to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migration hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. 
is kept among us in times of peace, standing hard without the consent of our legislation. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial, from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislators and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injuries. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the World for the rectitude of our intentions to, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, 
solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy law, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. messaging system. From a touchtone telephone, you may dial an extension at any time. For a directory of extensions, press 4. Otherwise, please hold for an operator. Sorry, the operator is not available. Interesting. Well, that's, I guess they must have switched their numbers then, I guess, around through, I guess. Maybe they didn't pay their bill. I don't know. It says right here, that's, uh, let's see here. For for comments, oh well, that's okay. Well, if it's for comments, two zero two four five six six two one three. They got another number here. 
I didn't see that one actually. So let's try that one. Two oh two. It's uh four five six. One 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 one. All right. The other the switchboard is uh, one four one four, but I guess they they're probably closed. So probably contact. I mean, time to go to bed for for uh, their uh, Joey there, huh? our president, our corporate leader. So uh, contacting. All right, let's see here. Let's try that one. Maybe a comment line here. I'm gonna leave a comment for him real quick here. I know no one else will. So let's see here. I'll just over put this one in here and then. No, I'll open up the phone lines. Anybody wants to talk here about the, uh, the horrific policies and procedures of our government today? You're more than happy to uh, let you vent here, and uh, always willing to listen to what people have to say. But remember, let's stick to the facts. Let's not have story time, and let's not spread false information. You know, let's try to stick to the truth. You know what I mean? Call this one first. Though. Thank you for calling the White House comment line. The office is currently closed. Your comment is important to the president. Please call back between the hours of 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Tuesday through Thursday. Our direct number is 202-456-1111. Until then, you may send an e-message at www.whitehouse.gov forward slash contact. Thank you for your call. Now they don't even let you leave a message anymore. So, so now you can just go to a website and then you type it in and it goes nowhere. It's where they can just delete, delete them automatically. So that's how that works now. And, you know, that's great. That's great. Well, that's the government you want, right, people? That's the government you want. I mean, that's who you entrusted to represent you. I mean, I don't see anyone out there uh, trying to change anything. I mean, I see these, these wacky, batty protesters there uh, – you know, 150 of them or whatever, this, uh, which which they got the right idea in a way. I mean, you know, these people they they have grievances and they want to be they want to talk to their elected representatives. They should not be behind a police barricade, okay? All right, the police should not be there stopping them from engaging with their elected representatives. You should have the right to walk into the building that they do their business at, and knock on the door, and bring a camera if you want to, to document it for everybody, and record a meeting with them and say, hey, I've got a complaint. 200 people out here, so I'm going to speak on behalf of them because obviously you can't see 200 people all at once, so I'm going to speak on behalf of them. No. Instead, you have to stand on the sidewalk and hold up signs because that's your First Amendment right. Where does it say in the First Amendment the, the way you should protest? Okay? Or the way you have to bring your grievance? Where does it say anything in there? How to, you know, you have to stand in a little square section over there that's fenced in. You have to get a permit, a permit. You have to get permission to bring your grievances. Where does it say that? It doesn't. I just, you know, I just played for you. All right, our our constitution, our Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence. I just played for you. Archives does not say anything in there. Well, matter of fact, it gives perfect examples. Of like what's happening today, we have come to them hum- humbly for many times. But we've complained, and they've just ignored us. That's it. It's enough. We had enough. No more. That's it. End of story. No more talking. Okay? Because we have the right to alter or abolish you, government. 
by any means necessary. We're tired. We're sick and tired of it, man. I mean, how many people are sick and tired of it? If you're not, if you like going to work and your metal coffins every morning for to get paid for your job just over broke so they could take everything from you so you could stop at a convenience store and gas up in the morning and get ripped off, pay your stupid taxes and your fees, go to work broke, come home broke, if, that's, if you're happy with that because you like living like a slave, then I, I don't know what to tell you. But I know there's people out there that are unhappy, and those people, where are you? Where are you? I hear the talk, but I don't see nobody was doing the walk. I don't see nothing of it. It's because 300 years ago, see, people didn't have a flat screen TV and a football game to come home to. They had a barn filled with animals, and they had to get out in that damn field all day long, all right, and work their ass off. And all the money they took home, they weren't going to give it to you. And you were sure as hell weren't going to take it. But today, <laughs> what do you do? What do you got? You know, right? Maybe that's why we're not angry, right? Maybe that's it. I don't know. I just don't know. What do you think? I mean, I mean, anyone can uh, six five seven three eight three press press uh, six. Oh, excuse me, six five seven three eight three zero six one six. Press one if you want to uh, comment. Let me just play this one here real quick for you. How bad do things have to get before you do something? Do they have to take away all your property? Do they have to license every activity that you want to engage in? Do they have to be throwing you on cattle cars before you start to say, now wait a minute, I don't think this is a good idea. How long is it going to be before you finally resist and say, no, I will not comply, period? That's a different answer for each person. Ask yourself now, because sooner or later you're going to come to that line, and when they cross it, what do you say, well, okay, cross this line. Okay, now cross that line. Okay, now cross this line. Pretty soon you're in a corner. Sooner or later, you've got to draw a line and stand your ground, whether anybody else does or not. That is what liberty is all about. I speak to you as a fellow citizen of the United States of America, deeply concerned about the welfare of our beloved country. I am not here to tickle your ears, to entertain you. I will talk to you frankly and honestly. The message I bring is not a happy one, but it is the truth. And time is always on the side of truth. Truth must be repeated again and again, because error is constantly being preached round about. I realize that the bearer of bad news is always unpopular. As a people, we love sweetness and light, especially sweetness. I am sorry to say that all is not well in so-called prosperous, wealthy, and powerful America. We have moved a long way and are now moving further and more rapidly 
down the soul-destroying road of socialism. The evidence is clear, shockingly clear, for all to see. With our national prestige at or near an embarrassing all-time low, we continue to weaken our domestic economy by unsound fiscal, economic, and foreign aid policies which corrupt our national currency. With the crass unconstitutional usurpation of power by the executive branch of the federal government, anti-spiritual decisions of the Supreme Court, all apparently approved by a weakly submissive rubber stamp Congress, the days ahead are ominously frightening. It is imperative that American citizens become alerted and informed regarding the threat to our welfare, happiness, and freedom. No American is worthy of citizenship in this great land who refuses to take an active interest in these important matters. Stand up for freedom, no matter what the cost. It can help to save your soul and maybe your country. May God give us the wisdom to recognize the danger, the dangers of complacency, the threat to our freedom, and the strength to meet this danger courageously. And then we print and we print and we print until we can print no more. And we expand government until it is so large, so crippling, so all-encompassing, so controlling. As it grows, the, the discontent in the, in the country continues to grow, and people have to be stopped. Well, for the good of everyone, we've, we've got to take this right away, or we have to silence this person, or we have to cripple this company, or we have to put these executives in jail. And before you know it, you are left with nothing but a rotting government. You are, you are left with nothing but a group of people in Washington who you don't trust now. And yet, they'd have all power. You give them the power of the banks, they control all of the finance. They control the way businesses grow. They control you from cradle to grave. And in the end, it collapses because that system doesn't work. And as it collapses, you either have a fascist dictator step in into the control of that gigantic government because your people are used to living under slavery, and we have completed the cycle that our founding fathers talked about. We have completed the cycle of starts with slavery, and then it is freedom and great enlightenment and prosperity and then apathy in defense of the dead. Well, everybody else wants to talk about... I think that's enough right there. I mean, you know, what more could be said? You know, so either nothing inspires you to wake up and do something and fight back, or 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 there's just no hope. I mean, because what? I mean, I, look, as many years as I've been doing this now, for all the years. I mean, when I was young, I was stupid and I made bad decisions, and I'm like, I'm sure most of us do, and that's why we try to teach people that are younger. And we're supposed to anyway, to be an example for them, so that they don't make the same mistakes we make. But I didn't have that luxury. 
So, you know, and I made the wrong decision. But now that I'm old enough, you know, I see what's going on, and I'm not too old where I can fight. I don't want to be 90 years old and this country collapses. And I've got roving bands of thugs and looters ready to burn down my house and stomp my head into the ground because I'm a white male. Okay? Because that's going to be the end, because we'll be the minority and we'll be hated. You think they hate the Jews now? Whoa! Wait till they start coming after us again. This, this, this Palestine thing, this is just a distraction. Wait till they start coming after us. You know, you guys hear it on the, on the, on, and a lot of these minority groups, they're using these, this, this Palestine thing as a, as a stage. And these Muslims, these corrupt Muslims, with their Koran. I mean, you got these, you got, why is that congresswoman in Minnesota still in office? Why has she not been arrested? Why has she not been arrested and taken into custody and, and, and for contempt of constitution? I can think of a whole list of charges that a special prosecutor can bring against her by, by on behalf of the people. A few of them in there in Congress, as a matter of fact. Why, why, why? They're causing violence. Do you guys want to prosecute Donald Trump? These uh these uh, liberals are you know, and the corporate news media, but these 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 uh Muslim uh, congresswomen causing violence, protests, and nothing, nothing, nothing. We're gonna censure them, censure them. Yeah, big deal, big deal. Let me bring you on a caller here who's been waiting for a little while here. Go ahead there. Uh, I think it's Dave probably. Go ahead. What's happening, Jackson? Yeah, action, Jackson. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna. I, I mean, gotta go on hold. I got another. <laughs> hey, I got another call coming in about my car. I'll be listening. So yep. Keep talking. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. All right, you take your call and come back on when you're ready. I know it's by bad timing. All right, just come back on when you're ready. All right. Let me go ahead and mute them there. I'll. Well, I'll, I'll leave them unmuted because you guys have me on hold now. So let's see here. Up, oh, another guy just put up. Uh, two callers just put their hands up here. So. Hang on here. Uh, let's, two one, let's do not the private number. Let's do 214 first. Go ahead, 214. Yeah, this is a, this is a gunslinger. Oh, hey. Uh, hey. Uh, yeah, you know, you're absolutely correct. Why are these ragheads still in Congress? The squad, yeah. I think that they're called. Okay. These people are terrorists. They are terrorist sympathizers. They support terrorism okay but yet they're in congress making laws that me and you have to obey by what the hell is wrong with this culture i mean why have these people not been decitizenized take their citizenship away and thrown out of this country when is people going to wake up it's beyond me i know i don't understand minnesota what the hell is going on in the state of minnesota you know I, know. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, how how do these people even get in there to, in to start out with? I know people are stupid. There's no doubt about that. Boy, they're stupid by the by the dozens, millions, I guess. Um, but are these people that 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 vote these supposedly vote these idiots in? They got to be the cream of the crop. Stupidity. Yeah. I mean. Okay, How figure, did they I mean, get in? That, that, that's an interesting question. I'd like to know who's – because, you know, me, I'm running for public office, and I just can't get in there like uh, it's nothing. 
you know. Yeah, I mean, I you, mean so, so. <laughs> you're going to be a, you're going to be facing an uphill battle, okay, when you're running for public office, okay, because one, you're white, okay. Yep. And ooh, they obviously don't like that for some freaking reason. Look at all these freaks they got in there besides the squad. What's what's that? Uh, the the John, what's his name? The the, the Frankenstein looking guy. I mean, it's Featherman. Featherman. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How in the hell did that dude get in there? He can't even talk for God's sake. I know. Yet he's up there making decisions. I, I'm just. I'm, same, I'm just. Man. I'm almost I'm almost speechless, and when 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 the, when the gunslinger gets almost speechless, you know there's something wrong. <laughs> wow. Well, the thing of it is, the point that I made up is we're not getting any younger in the tooth here, and uh, well, you know, I, 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 like I said, I don't want to be 90 years old and, and 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 watch my neighborhood get burned down and me get slung up on a rope, you know? Yeah, that's what <laughs> they'll come for us. That's yeah, that's 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 exactly what they want. There is a war going on in this country, and the white man is in the target. It's yeah. across there. Oh yeah, right. We're uh, the enemy. You know, we're the enemy. I mean, this is this is the most ridiculous thing. We're the ones that built this country. Sorry, other people, we did. Okay. Oh no. oh no! Oh no! Oh no! According to according to people like Shabaka, oh no! According to people like Shabaka who calls into the show and other people that are on podcasts I listen to, uh uh-uh. uh, the slaves mm. built this country. We just watched. Hey, naughty, naughty, <laughs> naughty for me saying that. And then and then what's that? What's that other the, the wish that, that likes to get butt fucked too much? Oh, AOC, asshole on crack. She yeah, wants yeah. to tax <laughs> white people. She wants to tax white people. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, yeah. I, I've never seen. I'm 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 almost sixty years old. I'm fifty nine, and I have never seen anything, anything, in my entire life, like I'm what I'm witnessing right now. It's mind boggling. Yeah, it is. It is. In two thousand eight, I thought in two thousand eight when Obama was elected, I was going to a lot of meetings here in Greensboro with a lot of patriots and whatnot. Seems like they've all disappeared. But I remember one guy standing up. He was ninety two years old. And he just he said exactly what you just said, and I said you ain't seen nothing yet, buddy. If you make it that long, <laughs> sure enough, yeah. here we are. You know, <laughs> and that's I mean, sad. I knew that it was, that's sad. I mean, it's, it's sad to see our country, our white country, that the white European people, you know, the the founding fathers, come over here to to build. And actually sacrifice their life, actually, okay, from yeah. fleeing England, and then it turns into to well, it's turning into a third world shithole is what it's turning into, mm-hmm. okay. You have our all border, these borders are open, yeah. Borders, uh, just, our, yeah, to say that the borders are wide open. Every son of a bitch, Tom, Dick, and Swing and Harry, can come in here from anything from any other of the third world shitholes, okay. And it's not now, it's not, it's a lot of Mexicans, yeah, but it's also Muslims, I like to call yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the dangerous okay. doctrine right there. That, yeah. That, that, Mexicans are, they're, they're on the low totem pole of the dangerous totem pole. They're on the lower one. The, the ones that are on the upper echelon of this damn totem pole is these damn Muslims. They want to yeah. kill everybody that's non-Muslim. They read it in their own Quran. 
All the yeah. white infidels. Guess what? We're the white infidels. Okay. And if you don't uh, convert to Islam, praise Allah, they'll come cut you yeah. off. Yeah. Bring it on. And that is their doctrine. Bring it on. That is, yeah, that is their doctrine, too. Yeah, that is. It is. You know, yeah. they will. Oh, and, man. And a lot of people I, don't, I don't believe know. that. I can't, I, I, you know, go read it for yourself. Don't take the word of the gunslinger. Go read it for yourself. I got the very town that I grew in and around and up in, okay, just right outside of Dallas, Texas here. Guess what they built a couple of years ago? A Muslim, a mosque. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. Are you kidding me? In, in the great state of Texas, Not what an insult. Great, what a fucking insult. I mean, it's only it was only like three miles, three and a half miles from my house where I grew up. A freaking wow. mosque. I mean, this thing's boy, fancy now. The, these suckers got some money, obviously. I'm I'm a retired yeah. master electrician, electrical engineer, and I know how these things are built. Okay, boy, this thing's fancy. Let me tell you. And, oh man. Oh. Well, yeah, you get what yeah, you deserve. Perks, yeah. I catch yeah. yeah. And but the thing of it is, though, we say we blame ourselves, but no, we're out there. I mean, we're you know like we do these podcast shows and we connect with people across the country. And we all live our lives and everything, but and I don't know what you do all day long when you're not on here on a podcast show in the evening time when you know and you don't you know and you know pretty much you know we don't know what everybody does, but the fact of the matter is we're frustrated. Obviously, we don't sit here and wait all day to put on an act in front of everybody to talk about these issues. But what can we do to fix it? What can we do? I mean, I'm running here in North Carolina, playing and trying to connect. And you just can't connect with anybody. It's so hard to make contact. Look, just calling the White House a minute ago. You know, and, and we just can't connect and network together to get the numbers to, to come together to unify. You know, how do we unify? You know, why aren't we putting together ideas to unify with each other to, 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 to make a difference? You know, why can't we do that? You know, I don't understand. What can we do? I don't have all the answers. You know, I, I, I just have the, the crying points that everybody else has. But surely there's people smarter than I out there that are listening that can maybe give solutions to, to what we can do to come together. I mean, these other people are doing it. I mean, $20 million, this group, uh, Freedom uh, thing or whatever, put together these protesters across the country for these Palestinians. And you yeah. see they're making a mark, you know? Mm. If you uh, if you look there in your chat room there, this is a picture of this synagogue. Wow, that's a hell of a deal. Uh, a synagogue of Satan establishment. I guess you just copy that and yeah, paste it into yeah. the search. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's yeah. Look how fancy this fucking place is. Okay. And this is like I said. This was right three and a half miles from my house that I grew up in. My my my. Ridiculous, isn't it? Unbelievable. House, wow. House DeSoto House of Peace and Community Center. Yeah, DeSoto, Texas. Yeah. ADM Engineering yeah, Construction Group. Uh, yeah. 51,000 square feet, 10-acre site. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so it, that, thing is, that thing is lit up like a damn... You could read a newspaper at 2 o'clock in the goddamn morning, 24 hours yeah. a day. Yeah. Look and at look pictures. at this right at the, underneath the, that. Right yeah. underneath that, you've got new black-owned restaurant, food truck lounge. I pulled up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. DeSoto, Texas. 
Yeah. I graduated high school just right down the street from this motherfucker. Okay. Mm, 83. Yeah, look how fancy wow. this thing is. Incredible. It's incredible. incredible. It's incredible. Unbelievable. Incredible. Wow. I mean... Uh, the money's that Now, who built that, though? Who paid for it? Who paid for the construction of this? Well, you got to yeah. realize... and. That these ragheads got money, obviously. I mean, this thing, this okay. is a, I have to say, this thing is a piece of art. It is very well uh-huh. constructed. It's, it's, it's very well constructed from a construction background. And it's not cheap, okay? These things don't come cheap. So, you know, you they've got backing. You, somebody's backing these some bitches. I guarantee you that. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a given right there. Because you don't yeah. get that. Quality and everything just from Joe Blow on the street corner. Okay, sorry you don't. Yeah. Insane. Man, it, uh, it's I mean, Texas, obviously. Well, what towns are surrounding your area? I mean, what's the population? What's the what's, what's the uh, numbers like? I mean, is it, are, I mean, are you down to minority? Yeah, well, or, the, or, the, or, you, or you know? The population of DeSoto is like... Now, I'd say it's probably at least up to 45,000, 55,000 people. It's a suburb of Dallas. It's right up, you know, right outside the head. It's still in Dallas County. Um, uh-huh. But most of the most of the suburbs of Dallas, Lancaster, uh, uh, Drunken, Duncanville, I call it Drunkenville, uh, Cedar <laughs> Hill, you know, they're all up, you know, not as small as it, as, it, as it used to be when I went up to school and grew up there. I only live about four miles from the from the place now, but uh, it's uh, it's 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 sickening. Not only these some bitches have have taken it over, but the blacks have taken it over too. Uh, I've yeah. never seen anything like it. It uh, I, when I graduated. Go ahead. Well, I'm just saying that you know uh, we're and we're not trying to expose here. You know, we get these groups out there that are pro-white, and that's great and all, but we're not trying to expose we want to get rid of them and hate them and hurt them. That's not like, no, no. We're not about that. You know? I mean, but we don't want to see our country destroyed either. Yeah, we don't want to see it destroyed either. We, Well, like I said, when I graduated high school, there were two blacks in my graduating high school, in, my class, in my class in 1983. Okay, two. Max, right there. And that didn't... The Soda High School is a pretty good sized high school, even then. Okay, so right now you go out there right now today. There's armed guards walking up and down the halls. I'd say ninety-seven percent black. And what has that done See, to the to, to the to, to the uh, 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 I guess you could say the job status and the neighborhoods of your. I mean, has it has, it, has the neighborhood changed? I'd say, and, it's going down. It's going downhill, okay. Because back in the day, when, when I, like I said, when I graduated high school, I mean, there was you didn't hear a whole lot about crime. Uh, we went to you know us, us rednecks that drove trucks to the school and everything. We had a rifle and shotgun and uh, you know proudly displayed yeah. in the back window. Cops knew about it. Principal knew about it. Teachers knew about it. Had no problem with it. Do that now, they'd have ten SWAT teams down on you. That's another yeah, that's that's an example. It's a good example. Yep, good example, example of right yeah of the destruction of of our our people and our our communities. 
because I was the same yeah. way in northern New Hampshire. When I was staying with my grandma, I went to high school up there when I was a freshman. And and this is 1987 or 1988. And, and, and yeah, they were bringing shotguns to school. They had the gun racks and everything. Yeah, nobody freaked out. It was, you know, a small school, but, yeah. And, and, and it was no nobody was shooting up the school. Nobody it didn't even cross their minds to do something crazy no. like that. Nothing like that. That shit. I mean, we used to leave our doors open. We used to leave the keys in the vehicles. Okay, I, I mean, I, I, it was probably when I was fourteen years old before I realized we actually had to lock the doors down. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's insanity Maybe. to have something that. You know, if they want to have their place, hey, that's fine. But don't invade my place, okay? I'm not invading yeah. their place. They're invading mine. I mean, he was. Wow. The, 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 yeah. The, the, I think the melting pot idea, obviously, is the destruction of America. And the downfall, obviously, that's designed to destroy us, really. You know, I really don't, I don't know why private callers went. You dropped private caller. I don't know. You dropped and you'll call back in. You got to press one and tape. I know you're still on on hold there. So whenever you decide to get back in here, you're more than welcome to. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't. I just don't understand it. And uh, and again, the shadow banning on the social media, on the internet, they want control of the internet. They got control of the internet already. I don't know what they're talking about. You know, so I don't get it. I don't understand what what they're talking about there. But uh, let me play a little clip here from uh, uh, the, the American Revolution, bloody struggle for freedom, and uh, just a little bit here. I, you know, I like to get back to the roots of, to, to try to inspire people. It's the only way is to learn from our history and to inspire people to, to rise up. And, and then I'll wait for Tave to get back in. I guess he had some talking points he wanted. And then I, that private caller, I don't know if that's John Doe or Sarge. I don't know. You guys hide your number, so I have no way of knowing. So let me just play this here real quick, a uh, couple minutes of this. Uh, and then we'll be right back. Boston, 1765. Lately, life in the colonies has been relatively tranquil. Certainly it has for Thomas Hutchinson. A fifth-generation Bostonian, Hutchinson has enjoyed good fortune and political success. The king has appointed him chief justice and lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. For years, Thomas Hutchinson has been one of the colony's most admired citizens. Until now. Hutchinson's life is about to take a dramatic and ugly turn. An angry mob is surging through Boston. Hutchinson is about to find out that he's the man thereafter. He's the man in charge of the intolerable new policies imposed on the colonies by their British rulers, tax policies that have incited an increasingly violent rebellion among the people. A rebellion against a tax imposed not by their own local representatives, but by Parliament 3,000 miles away in England. Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson is duty-bound to enforce this controversial new tax. Though he personally opposes it, he is being denounced as a traitor. Massachusetts has never seen a mob as violent as this. They're not just angry about the money. They're angry at the assault on their autonomy by English rulers who neither know them nor represent them. The revolt spreads like an epidemic to 
all 13 colonies. It's hard to imagine that the fallout from this tax will ignite a social revolution unlike any the world has ever seen. If you're looking that, that's that's very interesting right there. I like that. That's, that's a small little revolt there that, that ignited, ignited the revolution. Where, where are the people today? Where are they today? You know, I mean, we yeah. see so much, and this is, you know, this is an example. I'm just saying, you know, this is an example. And we see all these injustices happening to us today, and nothing. Nothing, you know? Let me play this here again. England's King George III is losing his patience. His colonies are acting like petulant children. These are his subjects, Englishmen, born in America, but Englishmen just the same. He is their ruler, and it's because of them that his empire is going broke. A decade ago, he sent British troops across the ocean to defend the colonies against French settlers and their Indian allies. The war went on for seven years, and it cost England 60 million pounds money it now desperately needs. There's a sense that after the Seven Years' War, um, America ought to pay its way a little bit. That expenses to protect North America didn't part be raised in North America. Parliament's solution is unprecedented. The Stamp Act of 1765 directly taxes colonies by having them pay for stamps that must be affixed to virtually every piece of paper they touch. From official documents to playing cards. It goes badly from the start. The colonists resent not only paying the tax, but also having it imposed by a faraway parliament where no one represents them. Though the Crown appoints colonial governors and high officials, each colony is long accustomed to ruling itself and levying its own taxes. The Americans believed that over 150 years of being colonists, they had in a sense created a nation within the British Empire. They had free assemblies, democratically elected. They had free and independent and very good newspapers. They had a, their own tax system. It wasn't just paying a little bit of money. The notion was that other people were making them pay money. So it's an emotional issue. Who's in control here? We want to control our own lives, which includes, of course, our own pocketbooks. In 1765, a new generation of colonists is rushing headlong down an uncharted path to an unknown end. And the Stamp Act is what starts it. Much of the spirit, if not the exact words, is, don't you see what they're up to? Don't you see what's going on? There's a strategy at work here to gradually erode American liberty. If you let them do this, what will they try to do next? For the British, the tax isn't about eroding liberties. It's about money. Stoking the colonial reaction is a powerful underground movement known as the Sons of Liberty. They meet secretly in taverns across the colonies come up with every tactic they can to keep government officials from collecting England's tax. People really started forming alliances between kind of street theater, street gangs, 
and merchants and artisans and figuring out ways uh, to all work towards a common cause, which is to repeal the Stamp Act. Soon enough, things begin to get ugly. Intimidation is a favorite weapon. Those who remain loyal to the king, known as loyalists or Tories, often find themselves terrorized by these self-anointed patriots. You two premium. That's, that's a good example again, right there. If you see now, now they come together, you know, at to for a common goal. Okay, a common goal. All right, because of the injustices that they believe. Like like the guy said, if we get let them get away with this, what next? All right, key point right there. Techniques, and feathering, for instance. This is a, a great way to humiliate people. This is and then they put these feathers, these goose feathers, all over you, and you're all hot and you're branching about like a silly goose. After a display like this, how is this person going to publicly oppose the Patriot position? A loyalist printer in New York City publishes a loyalist newspaper, and they come in and smash his printing press while they are also proclaiming free speech as a principle to fight for. That's the nature of war and the nature of revolution. While the angry rabble takes to the streets, men of property and education use printing presses and politics to denounce the stamp act tax. One of the most outspoken is 29-year-old John Adams, a bright, ambitious attorney who brings logic and intellect to this very emotional argument. He drafts anti-tax resolutions for some 40 Massachusetts assemblies. We have always understood it to be a grand and fundamental principle of the English Constitution that no free man should be subject to any tax to which he has not given his own consent. John Adams. Adams has always envisioned great things for himself, and the cause of liberty presents the opportunity of a lifetime. His wife, Abigail, is his trusted confidant and partner in all things, great and small. I think it's hard to overestimate the importance of Abigail Adams. I mean, not only is she more than an equal partner um, to her husband, but she comes to this contest with really perfectly formed ideas about which she feels passionately. She has enormous influence on her husband. One day, these two will be counted among the founders of a new nation. For now, John Adams is one of many voices of protest in a Stamp Act rebellion that engulfs all 13 colonies. Down in Virginia, a fiery young legislator named Patrick Henry ups the ante. Resolved that the inhabitants of this colony are not bound to yield obedience to any law or ordinance designed to impose any taxation whatsoever other than the laws of their own General Assembly, Patrick Henry. In other words, no taxation without representation. Henry's Virginia resolves become a radical touchstone for all the colonies. Three thousand miles away in London, another important player in the colonial drama, America's Benjamin Franklin is doing what he does best, playing chess, flirting with a pretty young thing, 
and keeping an eye on developments for his countrymen. Franklin becomes the point man. He is the man in England who is there essentially trying to hammer out some kind of compromise on issues of taxation with the crown. At 59, Franklin is the most famous American in the world. He has spent the better part of two decades in England as a trade representative and the colony's unofficial ambassador, wooing and wowing a London society with his wit and wisdom. This is the Philadelphia printer and writer who created Poor Richard's Almanac, the colony's best-selling annual, rich with homespun advice. He is the scientist who famously flew a kite to experiment with electricity, who invented the lightning rod and the bifocal. A self-made man who went from lowly apprentice to wealthy entrepreneur, Franklin is the embodiment of what it means to be an American, yet he adores England the mother country, and especially London. He's absolutely in his element. This is where the great center of science is at this point. It's, it's, a, it's like being in the city as opposed to having been in the country. He's really hit uh, the right group of people. And he's very much, he, he raises that as the happiest years of his life. Now the uprising at home has put Franklin at center stage, a place he generally enjoys. London's baffled politicians come pounding on his door, desperate for a solution to the problem hoping he can use his considerable influence to bring the colonists to their senses. There we go. And, 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 re and see, they, they really, though, this is, again, like I said, the examples here that are being, that how far we have lost our way in America to where we can't, we don't have this type of resolution. We don't have these tools anymore at our disposal. And most importantly, we don't have these great men who are willing to sacrifice everything for their brothers and sisters and their fellow countrymen. Business, not politics, that settles the matter. The decisive blow is the blow to the British North American merchants said, well, okay, while the standards is in place, we're just not going to trade with you. It's a way of getting merchants in England to say, if this is going to ruin business, then the standards got to go. Now England's merchants and bankers are feeling the pinch from the loss of business created by colonial boycotts, and they too start railing against the Stamp Act. The tax crisis has become just too big a headache, and in March 1766, a beleaguered parliament finally repeals the Stamp Act. Unbelievably, the people of the colonies have forced the world's greatest power to back down. The rebel colonists can celebrate their first sweet taste of victory and of power. But the battles are far from over. England still needs the money and still needs to show who's boss. Over the next four years, Parliament devises new taxes, which trigger renewed upheaval and end up being repealed. As this seemingly endless cycle continues, England dispatches two military regiments to Massachusetts from New York to keep order, adding fuel to the fire. In 1768, four more regiments sailed from England on a collision course with America. Boston, 1770. 1,000 British troops occupy this city of 15,000. 
It is a volatile brew. Boston is an accident waiting to happen. Literally. Conditions are ripe. We've got an indigenous population that is very, very sensitive to having British soldiers quartered amongst them. You have all of these British regiments in Boston. This is something that the Bostonians simply chafe under. Resentment grows against the soldiers in Boston streets. On the night of March 5th, a band of local patriots heckles a British sentry standing guard at the customs house. At first, they merely hurl insults, but soon they're hurling snowballs, and eight more soldiers come to the aid of their comrades. You have a group of men who are egging on British soldiers, looking for ways to kind of stir up a fight, and now they've created the antagonist that they've been trying to gin up. Hundreds more colonists pour into the street. They launch a barrage of ice, oyster shells, and rocks at the soldiers. The guards panic. Their guns go off. When it's over, five civilians lay dead on the frozen street. It was a tragically predictable sort of event. It's one of those situations in which the soldiers that are there to impose order are actually that seed of discontent that's going to produce disorder. Within hours of the deadly shooting, the Patriot spin machine roars into high gear. A tragic accident is recast as a murderous crime against the colonial people in what becomes known as the Massacre. This was not remotely a massacre. This was a case in which a mob assailed a small detachment of British soldiers, which may have panicked but had very legitimate cause to fear for their well-being. But that's not how it's portrayed to the outside world. A local silversmith and artisan named Paul Revere renders an exaggerated version of the event that makes it look like an unprovoked slaughter by the British soldiers. Boston papers are quick to print and distribute Revere's version. And this becomes the Patriot image of the Boston Massacre, which shows the British lined up in a row, firing their muskets all at once, as if they got the command to fire, which didn't happen that way. The first to die in the gunfire is a black man, a sailor and runaway slave named Crispus Attuck. He is widely viewed as the first martyr of the American Revolution. But nobody knew that one there, huh? Oh boy, huh? That was that's an interesting footnote there. Oh boy, but uh, again, you know, we don't that, that, that I've uh, actually done some research on this, and yeah, I think a little more happened that day. I'm, you know, my thing is this: Why didn't they just go ahead and just retreat? You know, why show authority and control over the people? That, you know, so, but we'll, obviously we know how it plays out. In this explosive atmosphere, public outcry pressures the British to pull their troops out of Boston. The soldiers responsible for the so-called massacre are put on trial for murder, and they are hard-pressed to find an attorney to take their case. Surprisingly, one of Boston's most vocal patriots steps forward, John Adams. 
Adams is willing to risk everything, his and his family's safety, and his reputation as an ardent advocate of colonial rights. But he believes passionately in the right to a fair trial. Without human rights, the patriot cause isn't worth fighting. It was one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered. Judgment of death against these soldiers would have been a foul stain upon this country. John Adams. Adams wins an acquittal for seven of the soldiers and light sentences for the other two. Only his unquestioned devotion to the Patriot cause keeps him from being branded a traitor. The crisis is resolved for now. Back in England, the colonial rebellion becomes a national preoccupation. Over the next three years, Parliament keeps trying to impose its authority with new laws and new taxes. As each new law inflames the rebellion, it ends up getting repealed. Except for what? A tax on tea. The principle involved is that Parliament is sovereign. It can pass laws on whatever it wants. So we're going to just keep this one in place just because to assert the fact that we can do this. The Tea Act puts only a three-penny tax per pound on the drink of choice for most Americans. It's hardly a burden, but in the current climate, a three-penny tax still equals oppression. It's all that militant patriots need to strike another blow against the empire. Feathers and coal dust are their weapons. On December 16, 1773, the Sons of Liberty enlist 50 men to darken their faces, stick feathers in their hair, and arm themselves with hatchets in a bad impersonation of Mohawk Indians. 5,000 people follow them down to Boston Harbor and watch as they climb aboard a merchant ship loaded with tea from England. With British soldiers absent since the Boston Massacre, there is no one to stop them. 342 crates of tea worth 10,000 British pounds are cast overboard. This wanton act of sabotage, which becomes known as the Boston Tea Party, will soon push the two sides to the brink of war. The British reaction was disgust and outrage from a British point of view, you had an entire colony running amok. And the British government, after the Tea Act, frankly said, we've had enough. We've had enough of Massachusetts. And we're going to clamp down on it. And we're going to make Massachusetts an example of what happens if you defy the authority of Parliament. At that very same time, the British discover yet another outrage committed by an American, someone they thought they could trust. Benjamin Franklin. Over a year ago, Franklin was passed a stolen packet of confidential letters written to a British official by Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson. There's one thing you need to do before buying anything online. Don't spend another dime on Amazon until you watch. Ever since Stamp Act rioters tore down Hutchinson's house nine years earlier, he had tried to juggle serving his king was serving his angry fellow citizens. The letters given to Franklin exposed Hutchinson's true loyalist sympathy. There must be an abridgment of what are called English liberties, 
I'd wish for the good of the colony to see some further restraint of liberty rather than the connection with the parent state should be broken. Thomas Hutchinson. Franklin sent the incriminating letters to colonial assemblymen in Massachusetts who had recently made them public as irrefutable proof of Hutchinson's treachery against the Patriot call. The reaction in the colonies was torrential. Mobs burned Hutchinson's effigy. The press vilified it. By December, when the Patriot Raiders throw the Boston Tea Party, they have destroyed Hutchinson's long career as a public servant. Within six months, Thomas Hutchinson will pack up his family and sail to England. The relentless strife that has set American against American will force this man, long devoted to colonial causes, into exile. Heartbroken, he will never again set foot in his beloved homeland. Now, in London, in January 1774, Benjamin Franklin is summoned to appear before the King's Council. On the heels of the recent looting of the tea in Boston Harbor, Franklin's recently revealed role in the Hutchinson fiasco is more than British officials can tolerate. He must answer for his sins and the sins of his countrymen. Franklin is dressed down by the Solicitor General of England for a full hour in the strongest possible language, in a truly abusive language, in front of a crowd that's going wild at this venomous attack. And Franklin stands stock still in this humiliating moment, you know, head erect and doesn't say a word for an hour. Many people have dated that as the moment at which Franklin becomes a revolutionary. Franklin, the revolutionary, is done with England, and England is done with him. Parliament punishes Massachusetts with a vengeance. It revokes the colony's 80-year-old charter, dissolves its local assemblies, and after a four-year absence, sends 3,000 troops to reoccupy Boston. The Crown now runs Massachusetts. These people had been meeting in town meetings for 150 years. When they can no longer decide their own fate, they said, this is the end. People throughout Massachusetts rose up as one and said, no way. There is no turning back for either side. The tension between the people of Massachusetts and the British troops becomes unbearable. It's only a matter of time before someone fires the shot that will echo around the world. Boston, August 10, 1774. John Adams is donning a new suit, and if he's not careful, the British will bury him in it. The Patriot leader is heading for a secret meeting in Philadelphia that will change the course of history and could cost him his life. Adams is one of four men representing Massachusetts at the First Continental Congress, an unprecedented and, as far as the king is concerned, illegal meeting of delegates from up and down the colonies. Fifty-five delegates of America's best and brightest who gather to come up with a unified strategy to oppose Britain's increasing encroachment on their liberties. If the king had his way, they would all hang for treason. That illustrates how strongly they felt that they must take steps to remove themselves from the 
what they saw as the arbitrary power of the British Crown. Britain has already suspended Massachusetts' constitution and imposed martial law there. The other colonies fear that it's only a matter of time before they all meet the same fate. Even though these colonies have different economic interests, they have different political histories, they have different populations, they recognize that in our relationship with Britain, we have much in common. Not all of these people have met each other. Most have heard about each other. Now they're eager to meet each other, see what's going to happen. People know that there's going to be moderate and not so moderate. And there's already kind of little factions forming. Joining John Adams from Massachusetts is another radical, 37-year-old John Hancock, a wealthy Boston merchant who has been using his considerable fortune to fuel the cause. Pennsylvania has sent a moderate lawyer, John Dickinson, 42, whose widely read essays back in the 60s helped launch the anti-tax movement. From Virginia comes Patrick Henry, the volatile young orator whose Virginia resolve helped stamp out the Stamp Act. And also from Virginia, a wealthy 42-year-old planter and veteran of the Seven Years' War, George Washington. One of the problems is they all thought of themselves as Pennsylvanians, Rhode Islanders, South Carolinians, much more than they thought of themselves as Americans. Patrick Henry really just electrifies everyone when he says, I am no longer a Virginian. I am now an American. John Adams says the trick is to get 13 clocks to strike all at the same time, 13 ships to sail in the same formation. Uh, it's not easy. Thirteen conspirators against the crown. Finally, after two months of arguing and pontificating, the Congress adjourns with a unified message for England. Until colonial rights are restored, all 13 colonies will halt all trade with Great Britain. Local militias are to arm and stand in readiness. As one might expect, kings don't do well with ultimatums. No one tells the King of England what to do. The die is now cast. The colonies must either submit or triumph. I do not wish to come to severer measures, but we must not retreat. I trust they will come to submit. He makes the assumption that a simple show of force, of military might, will be enough to scare the rebels back to their senses. Not likely. Certainly not in Boston. The city is a tinderbox waiting to explode. The British have turned it into a virtual police state. They have sealed off Boston Harbor, disbanded the colonial assemblies, and forced locals to house British troops. The man in charge is Commanding General Thomas Gage. His orders are to quash the rebellion. While he has the guns, the rebels have the numbers. He repeatedly asks the crown for a larger army. Thomas Gage only has 3,000 soldiers in Boston. He's looking at 5,000 in Worcester County, 4,000 in Plymouth, all over like this. He's looking at this. He says, what am I going to do? 
with my 3,000 people against force flight. He's playing a losing hand. He can't do anything for which he is called an old woman. He's very much a man in between. He's a military officer who is charged with a political task for which he's not really equipped to handle. With Hutchinson's departure, Gage is now Massachusetts governor and commander of an occupying army that no longer faces a small rebellion. It is a population in uprising. They start smuggling cannons out of Boston, and they start purchasing arms, and then militiamen start training, and they form the Minutemen. They actually sign associations. Uh, I will mobilize on a minute's notice. This is no longer a skirmish over taxes. The patriots believe their way of life, their liberty, and their property are at stake. Nothing short of war will settle it. In April 1775, Gage gets orders from England to break the uneasy stalemate. He will send a full force out to the countryside to seize a huge store of rebel ammunition. Unknown to Gage, Parliament, King George, or anyone else, the fate of the British Empire hangs on this decision. April 18th, 1775. British troops are on the march. Colonial militia are arming and stockpiling ammunition for what many fear is an inevitable showdown. British Commander General Thomas Gage has ordered his soldiers to capture a huge hidden store of gunpowder in Concord, a Massachusetts village 20 miles west of Boston. The British detachment that marches out of Boston, roughly 800 soldiers, march out knowing that the countryside is on the verge of armed action. Once Gage sends that mission out, he really has set into motion a chain of events that is beyond his ability to control. The British are indeed coming. The news starts leaking out, and people start mobilizing. They're ready. Out into the countryside to spread the word goes Paul Revere, whose engraving of the Boston Massacre fanned the flames of outrage five years earlier. Poems and school books will one day mythologize Revere's midnight ride as if he were the lone heroic messenger. But in fact, he is just one part of a whole system of communication. Paul Revere is one of a dozen and scores and literally hundreds of messengers going every which way. Bells are ringing. The shots are being fired. So before dawn, hours before dawn, the whole countryside is mobilized and knows what's happening. They arrange a signal. One lantern light in Boston's Old North Church if the British are coming by land, and two if by boat. British troops rode to the Cambridge side of the Charles River and wade through reeds and thick marshland to begin their overnight march to Concord. At around one in the morning at Lexington, Massachusetts, farmers, blacksmiths, and shopkeepers gathered to intercept the British at Lexington. YouTube Premium is ad-free YouTube and exclusive access to all things in Greece. 130 civilians, 
some too old, some too young, most with no formal military experience. Stand ready to risk it all against the world's most feared army. These were men who, who literally felt under attack. And in fact, they were under attack. The, the British Army were walking out to seize colonial property, and they felt compelled to defend it. 2 a.m. After an hour of waiting, no sign of the British. The night's chill sends many home. Others choose nearby Button Tavern to await another alarm. Most hoping it will never come. a.m. Drums announced that the British are on their way. I'm sure the mood on Lexington and Green was extremely tense. The best trained, most professional army in the world is bearing down on them. So even though they were fired up with a great sense of injustice, they were probably nervous. And if they weren't, they should have been. war 
as he helps his fellow delegates navigate the new and bloody conflict that threatens to blow America apart. With socially responsible investing by Betterman, it's easy to be changed the world. April 19, 1775, Lexington, Massachusetts. For the first time ever, British soldiers and colonial citizens have stood face to face and fired upon each other. Eight colonists lay dead. But it's not over. The British continue their advance to get what they came for, the colonial ammunition stored in nearby Concord. Along the way, detachments of Redcoats storm into local homes and ransack for weapons. The word spreads, and militia from all over the area rush toward Concord to head off the British. This time, it's the Americans who are coming. They find not just the Concord militiamen, uh, but all sorts of other militiamen coming and still coming and still coming and still coming. The British are certainly can swat these militia away like pesky flies. And thought that they cannot, but they've encountered hard-fighting men. The British are badly outnumbered. They are forced to retreat. Sixteen miles separate them from the safety of Boston. Sixteen miles on foot. They are sitting ducks for arms and angry colonials. It is a trauma they won't soon forget. All the hills on either side of us were covered with rebels, so that they kept the road always lined and a very hot fire without an admission. Henry de Bernier, British soldier. Twenty hours of constant barrage bring heavy losses to the beleaguered British. 73 dead, 174 wounded, and 26 missing. The Americans suffer 49 killed, with 40 wounded and 5 missing. By the time British soldiers get back to Boston, the colonials have the city surrounded, with militia from neighboring colonies on their way. Gage and his troops are trapped, with their backs to the sea. The rebels have added insult to outrage. They have possessed the roads and other communications by which the town of Boston was supplied with provisions. And with a preposterous parade of military arrangements, they have affected to hold the army besieged. Thomas Gage. Three weeks later, on May 10, 1775, Benjamin Franklin is back home in Philadelphia. Just as the Continental Congress is called back into emergency session. The bloodshed in Massachusetts demands a new colonial strategy. Assembling a continental army and complete independence from England are subjects now on the table. The delegates eagerly await the thoughts of their venerated elder statesman, Benjamin Franklin, only to find him unusually quiet and withdrawn. The long voyage from England has made him ill, but it is the short trip he will soon make that troubles Franklin most. 
Franklin is headed to a confrontation with his only son, 43-year-old William. The rift in the colonies has brought a terrible split between father and son. William Franklin has been New Jersey's royal governor for over a decade, a post granted him by the king, owing in no small part to being Benjamin's son. William is vehemently opposed to the rebellion and unalterably devoted to the king. Now his father will make one last attempt to win him over to the patriot side. Once they were as close as a father and son could be. It was William who held the kite during his father's famous experiment with lightning. It was William who was his father's constant companion in the early days in England. But now, neither the strife in the colonies nor the humiliation heaped upon his father by the British turns William away from the king. Now, father and son must choose between country and family, but neither will bend. Like the growing civil war between patriots and loyalists, reconciliation between father and son is no longer possible. There were two sides to this issue. Most people could have seen both sides. Everyone had reasons to see those sides. Franklin is a it. And he gives his son, he's absolutely unyielding with his son. Nothing has ever hurt me so much and affected me with such keen sensation as to find myself deserted in my old age by my only son. And not only deserted, but to find him taking up arms against me in a cause wherein my good fame, fortune, and life were all at stake. When I think about Benjamin Franklin, the great revolutionary, and his son, the leader of those conservative loyalists, it seems very strange to me that the old man should be the radical and the young man should be the conservative. Once they were inseparable, now the wound between father and son will never heal. William Franklin doesn't get very good press in the American textbook, but you know there were many others just like William Franklin. Which side are you on? That became the question. The political argument that tears the Franklins apart will also be replayed in thousands of colonial families. Politics have become intensely personal. Every American had to choose. Do I support the patriots? Do I support the loyalists? Is there any neutral ground between them? A bitter time is coming when everyone must choose sides, when fathers may have to fight sons, when brother may fight brother. There are twice as many patriots in the colonies as loyalists, but more than half the population just wants to be left alone. In the coming months and years, no one can remain on the sidelines. The ship has sailed. The revolution is on an irreversible course. It will take sturdy leadership from men as different in temperament as the people they represent. Whether they know it or not, these are the men of destiny will guide the American people into their uncertain future. And these are the men who will shed their blood and give their lives to make it happen. There you have it right there. Huh? A sacrifice right there. Shows you, it couldn't have been worded any better. You know, and it shows, and that's like today, when people say, well, I don't want to talk about politics, I don't want to talk about this, you know, I, I want to watch football. Listen, 
you got to make a choice. you got to make a choice. You're going to stand up for freedom or you're going to stand with tyranny. And that's the way it is today. And that's how it is. And, and look, father against son, family, families are, 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 you know, look, these wacky liberals out there, I don't care. You know, if one of my family members is, supports that type of agenda and supports tyranny, then they're not with me. You're not with me. There's no fence sitting. There's no in the middle. There's no I'm on both sides. Yeah. How about that famous uh, thing that they, people always say? Uh, what is it? Uh, we can agree to disagree. You know, I hear that sometimes. I heard that, I think, on another podcast show the other night or a couple nights ago. But, well, I guess we can all disagree or agree, agree to disagree. No. 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 There's no deals with the devil. No. Either you're with me or with us or you're not. That's all there's to it. And that's the way it's got to be. Hey, look, man, you know, we're, we're talking about freedom here. We're talking about something important. You know? And if you don't have time to discuss that, you don't have time to be a part of that, then shame on you. Dave, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're still there or not. I want to mute you. Are you there? Maybe not. Okay. Well, don't know where Sarge went, so that's fine. All right, well, that's fine. Let's, let's get back to something so very important here. The um, the American Revolution. Still very, very important. About another 15 minutes here of that. The Continental Congress rushes back to Philadelphia to take up the growing conflict. As Arnold sets out on his quest to capture the fort, he hears that another soon-to-be-famous name is driven by the same idea. Ethan Allen, a hard-drinking, hard-living frontiersman from Connecticut, couldn't be more different from Benedict Arnold. Allen has been engaged by Connecticut's Congress to rally his personal militia for its own mission to Fort Ticonderoga. These are the notorious Green Mountain Boys, who have been fighting their own war of independence against New York settlers. Ethan Allen, their colonel commandant, organized about 2,000 armed frontiersmen in what is now Vermont, who for five years had been fighting New Yorkers to keep them out of their farms, out of their new territory, and they were willing to fight for their land and they could move very quickly. The Green Mountain Boys jump at the opportunity to take on the British. Taking separate paths, Allen and Arnold, each with his own orders, head towards Fort Ticonderoga. Arnold is alone, expecting to recruit men along the way. Allen and his men are already preparing the attack. Their paths cross 30 miles from their target. Arnold presents Allen with his Massachusetts orders and assumes he will command the operation. Allen, full of swagger as always, all but laughs in Arnold's face. These really are very vain, egotistical men, two strong personalities, very much interested in the accumulation of individual glory. The Green Mountain Boys were personally loyal to Allen, which 
Benedict Arnold found out to his chagrin when he arrived and tried to take over the attack on Ticonderoga, and they put down their guns, and they said they were going to march home, that they would only fight for Ethan Allen. Arnold grudgingly agrees to conduct the raid with these men, but finds himself relegated to second-in-command. It is a humiliating confrontation. In the pre-dawn hours of May 10th, 83 Green Mountain boys and 50 Massachusetts militiamen sneak up on the British stronghold. The 50 sleeping redcoats inside have gone undisturbed in the wilderness for so long they are totally unprepared for what's about to hit them. <laughs> It's over in minutes. The British soldiers surrender without a fight. The fort's valuable artillery stores now belong to the rebels. They essentially stole the fort from the British. They, they were able to essentially walk in. Uh, in a manner of speaking, the, the, the British really left the keys in the door to Fort Ticonderoga. What happens next turns Arnold's stomach. Allen's men find 90 gallons of rum go on a three-day binge and tear the place apart, leaving Arnold to mop up after them. But the worst insult comes when Allen writes to Arnold's superiors in the Massachusetts Congress. Allen brazenly takes complete credit for the operation. He keeps all the glory for himself and purposely makes no mention of his rival, Benedict Arnold. For Arnold, it's a wound more devastating than being shot. For an officer's honor, public recognition was key. If you'd played an important role and you weren't mentioned, that was very disrespectful. So Arnold was justifiably offended. The affront to his honor is the first of many slights that will dog Benedict Arnold throughout the war and ultimately drive him to infamy. In Philadelphia, the men of Continental Congress reconvene in the Pennsylvania State House, which will later be named Independence Hall. They greet the capture of Fort Ticonderoga with decidedly mixed feelings. Still hoping for peace, they have refrained up till now from authorizing offensive actions against the British. The capture of Fort Ticonderoga catches the Continental Congress largely off guard. They had not anticipated this, they did not desire this, and it now has forced their hand. They know that a military response is inevitable, and they now must scramble to take action. The time has come for the 13 colonies to become a united military as well as political force. It issues currency against future tax collections from the colonies to raise and supply an army. Their mission now is to conduct a war, even while searching for a way to avoid it. We ought immediately to adopt the army as a continental army, take upon ourselves the pay, subsistence, clothing, armor, and munitions of the troops. John Adams. Adams urges the immediate appointment of a commander to head up this new army. His Massachusetts colleague, John Hancock, a vain, ambitious man who has just been elected president of Congress, assumes he will be offered this even more important role. His friend Adams is about to nominate him, or so he thinks. 
and that is a gentleman among us and very well known to all of us, a gentleman whose skill and experience as an officer, whose independent fortune, great talents, and excellent universal character would command the approbation of all the colonies better than any other person in the Union. That is the gentleman from Virginia. Hancock is stunned. Adams passes him over for a gentleman planter from Virginia, George Washington. Continental Congress wanted a national army, not just a Massachusetts army or a New England army. They thought that by getting a commander-in-chief from a, a different colony would balance that. So they cast a welcome eye on Washington from Virginia. At six feet two inches and 215 pounds, George Washington cut an imposing figure. Prior to his nomination, he spoke very little in session, yet spoke volumes about his intentions by showing up every day dressed in a military uniform. He's a very impressive guy. He wears this military uniform with great dignity. And, of course, he shows up making the point. I have military experience. I am a person who you can count on as your military commander. So he has the image to do it. He's got the experience. He's from Virginia. They make him the commander-in-chief, and he, he modestly says, I'm, I'm really not equal to the task, and I'll just do my best. But lest some unlucky event should happen unfavorable to my reputation, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in the room that I this day declare with the utmost sincerity I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. George Washington. His behavior seemed somewhat disingenuous. Clearly, he wanted it. He, he, he was very ambitious. He was particularly ambitious in military matters. Early on, he realizes that the best way to be ambitious is to convince everyone else that you're not ambitious. And he follows this through his entire life. Ambitious, disingenuous, modest. Who is this man, George Washington, the man appointed to construct a new continental army? In 1775, he is hardly a household name. He's one of the wealthiest men in the country. He's in his mid-40s and really should be in retirement at that time. Washington is someone who has nothing to gain from participation in the revolution and everything to lose. YouTube Premium is ad-free YouTube and background play. So you... He wasn't born to wealth. Washington's father was a Virginia farmer who died in 1743 when George was only 11. Young George's circumstances were modest, but his dreams were big. But he envisioned himself dancing at the Grand Falls in the huge homes of the rich. He envisioned himself being a great landowner. And these are dreams that he pursued constantly all of his young adult life. As a teenager, he immerses himself in the teachings of a book called The Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior, which instructs readers on proper manners, social behavior, and temperament. He commits them to memory. In the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise, nor drum with your fingers or feet. Lift not one eyebrow higher than the other, and bedew no man's face with your spittle by approaching too near him when you speak. 
George Washington himself was very anxious to have all the right moves. He's as anxious as anyone as a teenager to get them right. At 16, with only an elementary school education, he becomes a surveyor where he learns how to navigate the wilderness, something that serves him well when he is appointed to the rank of major in the Virginia militia. In 1754, he leads a company of men into a territorial skirmish with French soldiers, where someone in his regiment, perhaps Washington himself, kills a French diplomat. Many believe his poor judgment starts a chain of events that leads to the French and Indian War. Despite his inauspicious start, Washington persists and eventually proves himself to be an exemplary officer. After the war, good fortune boosts Washington's ambitions. He marries a wealthy widow named Martha Custis and inherits his half-brother's estate, Mount Vernon, which he goes on to build into a plantation with more than a hundred slaves. As part of the landed gentry, he goes into Virginia politics. Though he may feign unworthiness, there is no one in 1775 better equipped to take on the job of Commander-in-Chief. Very importantly, he had been a political figure. For 16 years, he'd been a state legislator. So he was somebody who knew how to work with politicians, could work with Congress, and would not be a threat to Congress. My dearest, it has been determined in Congress that the whole army raised for the defense of the American cause shall be put under my care. Curiously, even when writing to Martha of his appointment, Washington is still pretending he doesn't want the job. You may believe me when I assure you in the most solemn manner that so far from seeking this appointment, I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it. What he can't avoid is destiny. He takes the job for no pay and prepares to leave for Boston to take on the strongest army in the world, not yet knowing that all hell has already broken loose up there in a place called Bunker Hill. May 1775. The rebels' capture of Fort Ticonderoga turns up the pressure on the already beleaguered British commander, Thomas Gage. Back in the French and Indian War, 2,000 British soldiers lost their lives, seizing Fort Ticonderoga, and now Gage has lost it to the Americans. In London, King George is furious that Gage's superior forces have failed to control the colonists. I am of the opinion that when once these rebels have felt a smart blow, they will submit. And no situation can change my fixed resolution, either to bring the colonies to a due obedience or to cast them off. King George III. No more reasoning. No more legislating. The colonies will come to their senses or face a show of force unlike any they have ever seen. Gage is dismissed. He is too weak, too tolerant. To replace him, the British command sends its three best generals to bring the colonies to heel. These are England's best and brightest military men, who become known as 
the triumvirate of reputation. General Henry Clinton, American-born, a competent soldier, but socially inept, a man referred to even by himself as the shy bitch. General John Burgoyne, vain and ambitious. One popular English writer gives him the nickname Julius Caesar Burgonius. And General William Howe, an experienced military man who came to appreciate America's British colonials while fighting alongside them in the French and Indian War. These three supporting generals were brought in essentially to supplant Gage, and it became a, a kind of personal contest between these three men as to who would take Gage's position as commander-in-chief in America. Howe is the odds-on favorite, but an odd choice to take over the command in America. A political liberal, he opposes the king's policies in the colonies and had once vowed not to fight against his English countrymen there. General William Howe was opposed to the war. All they wanted was the Americans to submit to British laws and British taxes. They didn't want to go fight them. Boston, June 16th. In the months since Lexington and Concord, rebel militia in the hills around Boston have laid siege to the city, trapping the British and their loyalists inside. Now the British command is planning to break the rebel stranglehold with an overwhelming offensive up Bunker Hill to take the high ground around Boston. But the colonials are a step ahead of the British. Spies have slipped the British plans to the rebels. Up in the hills, regimental commanders from Connecticut and Massachusetts lead their men to fortify Bunker Hill. Then decide to move one hill closer to Boston on Breed's Hill. There, they dig in for a British attack. Midnight, June 17th. 1,200 militiamen race the clock to beat the sunrise before it reveals their position to the British below. They must control the high ground before the enemy makes its own move. At daybreak, the sleeping British ships in Boston Harbor spot the militia positions and sound the alarm. All of Boston awakens with a start. The Patriots have beaten the British to the punch. The first full battle of the revolution is joined. As the Redcoats assemble for battle, ships in the harbor try to pin down the militia with cannon fire. Known as a passionate artist, known for loving the outdoors. Under the command of General William Howe, lines of British soldiers, their bayonets at the ready, climb the hill without any cover. Easy target for a man and musket that can shoot straight. The British are convinced that they can form up in line, and despite taking casualties, instill in the Patriots' fear of a professional, disciplined force of regulars. 
and demonstrate to the Americans that this is madness trying to oppose this army. Twice, Howe's men charge up Breed's Hill. Twice, they are repelled by the militia. From roofs and hilltops, civilians come out to witness the bloodshed. It is war as spectators for, but many fear for their loved ones in the fight. The rebel barrage goes on for three hours until they run out of ammunition. Despite their advantage, the rebels have no choice but to retreat. The British finally capture the hill on their third charge. The ground is strewn with red-coated bodies. The new commander now realizes what no one in faraway England could possibly understand. This is not a rebellion. This is war. When I look to the consequences of it, in the loss of so many brave officers, I do it with horror. The success is too dearly bought. British General William Howe. The British pay a horrendous price for their victory at Breed's Hill, which erroneously but permanently becomes known as the Battle of Bunker Hill, after the original target. 1,000 of the 2,300 British soldiers, nearly half, are dead or wounded. The Americans lose 271 men out of 1,600. In defeat, the colonists have won. A paradox that over the next six years will come to characterize the American bloody war for independence. Bunker Hill was a defeat, of course, for these colonists. But they inflicted such heavy losses on the British that it makes them a little cocky. That was the best-trained, most professional army on Earth. Look at the damage we did to them. It really gives them way too much confidence. In the days following the Battle of Bunker Hill, even as Congress begins to provide for a continental army, the delegates make one last attempt at reconciliation with Britain. They send the king what they call the Olive Branch Petition, respectfully requesting that he grant the North American colonies autonomy within the British Empire. Like all communication that crosses the Atlantic, it will take months for an answer, and General George Washington can't afford to wait to build his army. He alone holds the keys to liberty or to death. As word of the valiant defense of Boston's Bunker Hill reaches Philadelphia, General George Washington writes a new will and heads off to meet his death. Whatever mortal fears Washington harbors, the people he meets on his way to Boston have no such misgivings about the man charged to defend them. The appointment gives universal satisfaction. I was struck with General Washington. Dignity, with ease and complacency, the gentleman and soldier looks agreeably blended in him. Abigail Adams. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Washington is in for a terrible surprise. Despite their brave defense of Breed's Hill, the men he is coming to command fail even his worst expectations. 
he really has a task that is absolutely mind-boggling. We say that there was an army around Boston. There wasn't an army around Boston. There was a gaggle. These men are ragged, disheveled, getting drunk on duty, no knowledge of how to handle a musket efficiently. There was no discipline. There was certainly no hygiene, um, very little structure. It was a mess. These are Washington's revolutionaries. This is the army he has to defend against the British Empire. Whatever Washington may think of his soldiers as men and as citizens, as soldiers, they're not much used to it. The dirty mercenary spirit pervades the whole. Could I have foreseen what I have? No consideration upon earth should have induced me to accept this command. George Washington. The general must start from scratch and personally attend to even the lowliest, most rudimentary function. His first task are fundamentally administrative tasks. His junior officers have to be taught how to fill out a report, how to count men, how to purchase supplies, how to buy tools, where to dig latrines, where to boot your meat, where to bury offal. These are all things that, amazingly enough, Washington has to concern himself with. So the task before him is immense, and it's going to require a tremendous amount of energy to literally whip this army into shape. And the whip will come down hard. Every man will learn discipline by Washington's very strict code. For disobedience of orders and damning his officer. To receive 30 lashes on his bare back. For expressing himself disrespectfully. To be stripped of his arms, put in a horse cart with rope round his neck, and drummed out of the army. General George Washington. When you have these woke revolutions, it requires all of us at some point to say no, not The new army is stitched together with widely different militias from very different colonies. Each is accustomed to its own command and its own way of doing things. Establishing a common culture is yet another overwhelming challenge. There were so many different brands of fighting traditions, cultures, and people. Washington was very concerned. All right, everybody, there's a minute left to the live podcast here. Let's go into overtime. Uh, actually, I think I'm going to end it right there. Uh, we're going to end the podcast right there because I don't think I got any live callers here. Want to press one and uh, jump in here and talk? So, but uh, hopefully it was a lesson to everyone. You know, uh, got to learn from history, man. So uh, I don't know what else to tell you, what else to say. Hopefully this podcast inspires people to wake up and understand what what, what tyranny uh, continues to uh, um, be be at our doorstep. So it's your choice what you want to do. You know. Uh, it's a shame that I don't have a full call, full call board here. Maybe if I was talking about strippers in a football game, uh, you know, I'd have my the phone lines would be uh, blown up. You know, how sad, how sad. Maybe you deserve what you get. Maybe you deserve it.
President recognizes Mr. Adams of Massachusetts. Objects of the most stupendous magnitude. Measures which will affect the lives of millions, born and unborn, are now before us. We must expect a great expense of blood to obtain them. But we must always remember that a free constitution of civil government cannot be purchased at too dear a rate, as there is nothing on this side of Jerusalem of greater importance to mankind. My worthy colleague from Pennsylvania spoken with great ingenuity and eloquence. He has given you a grim prognostication of our national future, but where he foresees apocalypse, I see hope. I see a new nation ready to take its place in the world. Not an empire, but a republic. And a republic of laws, not men. Gentlemen, we are in the very midst of revolution. The most complete, unexpected, and remarkable of any in the history of the world. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. I am not without apprehensions, gentlemen. But the end we have in sight is more than worth all the means. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. My judgment approves this measure, and my whole heart is in it. All that I have, all that I am, and all that I hope in this life, I am now ready to stake upon it. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 you need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.